From the Public Relations Global Network, this is PRGN Presents. I'm Adrian McIntyre. And I'm Abby Fink, president of HMA Public Relations in Phoenix, Arizona, and a founding member of PRGN. With public relations leaders embedded into the fabric of the communities we serve, clients hire our agencies for the local knowledge, expertise, and connections in markets spanning six continents across the world. Our guests on this bi-weekly podcast series are all members of the Public Relations Global Network. They will discuss such topics as workplace culture, creative compensation and succession planning, the importance of sustainability and environmental, social and governance programs, crisis communications, and outside-of-the-box thinking for growing your business. For more information about PRGN and our members, please visit prgn.com. And now, let's meet our guest for this episode. Hello, I'm uh, Gilbert Manirakiza, or uh, Gilbert Manirakiza, for those who prefer my French uh, name. I am based in Nairobi, Kenya. I'm the chief executive officer of the Newmark Group, which is uh, one of Africa's few Pan-African agencies operating across a number of countries, uh, more than 30 countries to be more precise. And I'm very happy to be here. So one of the things that PR practitioners often say is we need to have a seat at the table in order to help guide conversations and and provide valuable information to uh, the organizations that we work with and represent. But who is at that table is also very important. And so one of the things that we're going to talk about today is really executive involvement and what leadership buy-in looks like with, you know, this, any information sharing that's going to happen from um, the organizations. And if you could talk a little bit about, from your perspective, really what the importance is of having these executive leaders involved in and understanding, you know, the role of communications and and why it's important for us to get their buy-in in our, in our efforts. Well, that's a brilliant question, Abby, and thank you for having me uh, on today because I'm a big fan and I think you're doing a fantastic job here. When it comes to a brand's reputation, if if I'm to start from there, we have to ask ourselves, what is a brand? And the, the simple answer is a brand is the expectation of an experience, the promise of getting something out of consuming a service or a product or interacting with a given organization or brand. And a promise has to have trust with it for it to be to materialize. If if you, you have an expectation and it's not fulfilled, you lose trust. And the people who carry best that trust that trust tend to be the people behind the brand. And the senior most people are usually the ones who are allowed to talk for Uh, for the brand most of the times, especially for purposes of PR, which brings in the role of the C-suite. In most of the multinational organizations and companies that I have worked with over the last 10 years, one of the things I've noticed is that there is a a challenge whereby many of these executives are not um, feeling safe about playing that role of carrying the brand, carrying the voice of the brand. And, And that creates a challenge for us as PR practitioners because the people we need the most to create that relationship with external stakeholders are either nervous or in some cases, highly regulated as to what they can do. And that means that therefore we have a very, very significant role to play 
in making sure that number one, they are not as nervous and as blockaded from actually playing this extremely significant role. And when you talk about a seat at the table, it essentially means that not only do we need to be uh, to have that seat at, at the table, but the way we play that role when we are on that table is very, very critical. It's very important for people in our profession to be able to inform, reassure, and equip this executive team to play this very important role. So how do you start those conversations? And, and you know, the, these leaders are elevated in our presence, right? We recognize that they are guiding our organizations, that they are the, you know, the, the thought leaders, they have the, the future ahead of them thinking about the perspective. And then to recognize their hesitancy um, and their maybe unwillingness in themselves to recognize that hesitancy. How do you start those conversations to get them to the comfort level we really need them to have in that role that they need to play in a more public space? That's a great question. And, and the first layer of that answer, and there are two layers to this, the first layer is awareness. They first of all need to understand that research shows that the reputation of a CEO, just to take that one cutter, the CEO, it, it accounts for nearly half of the brand reputation value of the organization they are leading. That one metric tends to open a conversation with these leaders because sometimes even starting the conversation is a challenge, especially when most of the time we don't have a lot of contact time with these leaders. But I've found that when you give such pieces of knowledge and statistics, the awareness it, it elicits is usually invaluable. And that tends to get you into the room because many times I've found that getting into the room and getting into their level of interest is very, very difficult. But once you get in with that kind of um, insight, then you have to start a process because it needs to be step by step. The thing about people at that level, they also feel very vulnerable. So you have to create a safe process for them to get to a place where they are easily carrying the brand and expressing themselves. Because many of them will tell you, I don't want to engage publicly because what if they ask something about my personal life? What if they ask about something that went wrong with my business? So you have to then tell them that there is a safe way for them to carry the voice. And usually I encourage them to do this as a team, the CEO and the minus one executives. And the question I typically, the second question or the second layer I start with is a reflection question, which is, what is the raison d'etre? Or why does this brand exist? Why should a mother selling tomatoes on the side of the street, and I'm talking in a very African uh, setting here, why should she care that your brand exists? And this question I have noticed gets instant interest from these leaders because most of the time they say, hey, we've actually never asked that question. And sometimes I will go around the room asking the same question. If you have 10 executives in the room, you have 10 different answers. And I usually say, this is where we need to start from. And the, the process after that tends to be absolutely fantastic because you get engagement, you get excitement. And from there now, you start giving them the, the tips and the techniques to, to get it right. Well, and it shifts the focus back to where you would like it to be, which is on the organization itself versus 
my personal life, which does end up in some of these conversations, but really it helps them get back to the reason that you are um, bringing them into the conversation. So are you observing things that might, um, you, you mentioned the, the woman on the side of the street selling tomatoes as a, an African reference. So are there other things that you, that you think are um, different or unique to the communities that you are serving that, that in this context of leadership and executive buy-in into the conversation and, and you know, this discussion around bringing them along into the process, are there other things that are, you know, in your observation, unique to the communities that you are working within? There are definitely some peculiarities uh, of operating in in Africa. And and I think one of the privileges I I have is that I work and my team works across the continent, primarily with global multinationals out of the U.S. or Europe who have to come and localize themselves. I have gotten the privilege of uh, working with the global CEO of General Electric, for example, when he was coming for, for a series of visits and other global leaders coming from uh, from the US and, and and from Europe. And one of the things that I realize is essentially humans are the same. There's no much difference as to what people want from brands. They want the brand to fulfill the promise that it says it's going to fulfill. The only difference is the context can be quite different. You can have the political context, the economic context, and the social context. And by and large, what you see across Africa is there is a very strong presence of ethnic identities, linguistic identities. And Africa is a region itself is 55 countries, 3,000 languages. So it tends to be quite difficult for a company out of the U.S. that primarily navigates one cultural context, one language, to then all of a sudden have to deal with this kind of dynamic ecosystem with all these countries and languages and cultures. So that would be one of the things that I tend to have very interesting conversations uh, with executives on. The second one I would say is pretty universal, navigating the political intricacies of any given market. And and if you're dealing with 55 markets, it, it becomes very interesting for most executives. So if I was to sum up my answer, I would say it's the diversity of, of factors that kicks in, the high number of languages and so forth. Joubert, 10 years ago, there was a book published that profiled African CEOs. It was called Success in Africa. The author, Jonathan Berman, had worked as a consultant with many multinationals and with many African companies. And these CEO profiles painted a picture of obviously not a unified outlook, but a very African outlook. Their perspective on leadership and on the work their companies were doing in all sectors, from telecommunications, manufacturing, you know, et cetera, all across the board, were very much connected to their own unique biographies and their own unique communities. Now, some of them were sort of homegrown African CEOs. Some of them had studied abroad, had degrees from top universities around the world and had come back and so on. But one of the things I took away from that was that leadership's not the same everywhere. And yet there are similarities. So when you're interacting with the CEOs of global multinationals and, of course, uh, making campaigns, uh, introductions, all the things that you would normally do in specific African contexts, how do you see this 
issue of leadership itself. Is there a uniquely African flavor? Again, I don't want to homogenize and unify this, so please provide whatever sort of specificity we need here. But leadership is not the same. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. You'll find that the typical African leader will have certain traits that you probably will not find in the same level of intensity in a leader coming from the US or Europe. And again, at the risk of generalizing, but generally speaking, most African leaders tend to be storytellers. And there is a reason for that. It's because in most African communities, my own included, we grow up as young children hearing these interesting stories, um, which was the way of our communities to teach us about certain life values. I mean, you have fairy tales in, in more Western countries, which would be a direct comparison to that. But one of the interesting things I've found about uh, African bred CEOs is really that storytelling approach to leadership. They view the world from a point of view of storytelling, but also from a point of view of, of empowerment, with the starting point being to build people and capacities from the ground up going up. On the other hand, um, CEOs coming in from, from other parts of the world, what I love about their outlook is, number one, many of them tend to be extremely focused on learning, learning about what's going on around the new geographies they're going into and bringing in a perspective of results. And that's, again, a very positive thing. So generally speaking, you'll find that the leadership focus of these two will tend to be slightly different in terms of their approach. One will be very empowerment uh, focused with a lot of storytelling is a general approach to how they voice out the companies that they lead. But the ones coming in from other parts of the world, they will tend to have very specific targets in terms of their interactions. They will tend to perhaps focus on dealing with government leaders, uh, less so community engagement. And what we try to do actually is to bridge that gap. And that's why we come in and, t and, and try to educate them and tell them the storytelling is very important. The empowerment is very important. And then you find that when you put the two together, you end up having a fantastic cocktail of, of achievement. Uh, so I, I hope I've answered your question, but generally speaking, that's the approach. A cocktail of achievement. Is that what you, that's fantastic. I'm going <laughs> to... I get all these interesting little nuances when, when I have these conversations of ways I would like to incorporate new terminology into the way I talk about what it is that we do. So that, that's going to be the one I get from this, this conversation. I'd like to have you go in, uh, share a little bit more on the, the context of um, sort of the knowledge that you bring and the knowledge that you share um, with your own learned experiences and how that impacts, you know, what you do and, and how do you help your, your, your other members of your team, you know, the, the understand that concept as well. Certainly the executive leadership has the opportunity for this and how do they incorporate that understanding into the organization so that that, that idea of coming to it from learned experiences is really a universal truth within the organization. That's a brilliant question because my biggest worry when I'm having executive teams, and, and actually it's even a question I put to them, I ask them, if you have five different versions of the definition of what the organization stands for in the country, imagine if you have 300 people under you, you have 300 versions. So when I illustrate that, they, a light bulb goes on in the room and 
I've had a situation whereby a CEO told everybody to shut off their laptops and, and phones and just say, this is really the conversation I've been trying to have. How do we get the entire organization to have a, a singular message around why we exist and what we do and what we promise? And technically speaking, in terms of how I then go about taking them through it, I, there's something I call a messaging architecture, which is uh, I try to simplify it as much as possible. And this architecture usually has three pillars. They can either be stacked or parallel to each other. But the first layer or the first pillar of that architecture is to make sure that everyone has a singular message for why they exist. And I don't allow the, the, the session to go on until we have that message sorted out because we can't have everybody saying, what they think about why the company exists. The second pillar and layer that tends to be the general value, I would say not value proposition, but generally the brand promise. What is this? This is why we exist. These are the challenges we, we, we or maybe this is the central challenge that we exist to solve. And then this is who we are as a company in relation to this particular challenge or set of challenges. And thirdly, these are the specific things we do to be able to achieve the other things in the other two pillars. And then I give them a blueprint of how to consistently share these three pillars in every meeting, every board session, every staff meeting, so that every single employee walks away at every opportunity with a clear idea of these three layers. And I have, uh, there is this one particular bank that uh, was rebranding and they were extremely scared because they were going from a global brand to an African brand, and they felt that everybody was going to walk away. And we, I worked with them for about two years before they rebranded, and we went through this process. And by the time they were rebranding in a number of their markets, they exceeded a thousand percent revenue growth in their first year of operation after the rebrand. And this shows how when you have this consistency across the whole organization, and it's simple, and it's well layered in a way that the storytelling is easy for even the cleaner uh, in the corridors. I think you can actually pull it off quite well. And pretty much that that's how to, to do it. You just choose the channels and then we go through mock interviews and we go through different sessions. We wrap it around quite well in such a way that by the time we are done with this coaching process, they are ready to be the ambassadors for this messaging framework every single day for a certain period of time. Thanks for listening to this episode of PRGN Presents, brought to you by the Public Relations Global Network. We publish new episodes every other week, so subscribe now in your favorite podcast app. Episodes are also available on our website, along with more information about PRGN and our members at prgn.com.